Welcome to the Business of Learning, the Learning Leaders Podcast from TrainingIndustry.com. Welcome to the Business of Learning, the Training Industry Podcast. I'm Taryn Aish, editor at trainingindustry.com. Hi, and I'm Scott Rutherford, also with Training Industry. Today's podcast focuses on organizational culture and how leadership can affect that culture and some of the outcomes this has for employees, employee satisfaction, engagement, and even happiness and wellness. And we'll get that conversation started in just a minute after this. As a training professional, your job is to effectively manage the business of learning. You probably listen to this podcast to gain insights on L&D trends being used by some of the most innovative thought leaders in our market. But did you know that training industry also provides data-driven analysis and best practices through our premium research reports? Our entire catalog, including reports on topics such as deconstructing 70-2010, women's access to leadership development, learner preferences, and the state of the training market, just to name a few, can be found at trainingindustry.com slash shop research. New insights create new ways for L&D to do business. Let training industry research reports assist you in taking your learning initiatives to new heights. Go to trainingindustry.com slash shop research to view our entire catalog. We're joined by two guests who are both experts in connected leadership. First, I'd like to welcome author and speaker Michael Lee Stallard. Hi, Michael. Hello, Taryn. Hello, Scott. Hi, and we're also joined by Jay Morris, who's the Vice President of Education at the Yale New Haven Health System and also the Executive Director of the Yale Institute for Excellence. Welcome and thanks for being here, Jay. Thank you, Scott and Taryn. Uh, well, I think part of the impetus for this conversation today was Cigna's U.S. Loneliness Index, which found that loneliness among Americans has reached epidemic levels, is what they called it. Um, they surveyed about 20,000 adults, and almost half of them reported sometimes or even always feeling alone. Uh, so let's just open up this conversation by uh, starting with what, what do you think has caused this loneliness epidemic, and, and how does that affect work? Well, I think there's been a lot happening in society, so I think there's a lot of societal factors that, that, that impact that. But I do think it's important for leaders to really begin recognizing uh, when members of their team are not engaged and not providing their voice. So I think uh, there are a lot of factors I think we could identify that have impacted this, but I think one of the key pieces for me is that leaders are aware of their team, uh, when they're fully engaged, if their voices are heard. And I think that's at least the place to really acknowledge uh, the problem that we have. Yeah, I, I agree with Jay. I think that, um, that we have loneliness in the workplace and we have loneliness outside the workplace. And you, know, you look at the data that people are spending so much time in front of screens these days and it's crowded out time for face-to-face -face relationship and that really deeper connection that we're hardwired uh, to need. And when we don't have it, we uh, feel lonely or we can be socially isolated where we're not around people and we have more people working remotely. So there are just all these societal trends as Jay mentioned, that are moving people in the direction of isolation. And so we need to be more intentional about making sure that we have that need for, that hardwired need we have for connection met. And those societal trends, of course, follow us into the workplace. I think we've all seen over the last maybe 10, 15 years or so, uh, a proliferation of pressure, I'll put it that way, of, of uh, all of the productivity devices and the technologies and chat tools and, and uh, collaborative platforms we're supposed to use to connect with our, our uh, colleagues. Are those, are those productivity technologies, in fact, part of the problem, do you think? Well, I, I think, um, you know, def definitely, if we spend too much time 
online. And um, I did see there was some research that showed the average adult was spending uh, close to 10 hours a day in front of a screen. So you think that's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, that counts the time we spend at work and a lot of the time we're in front of our laptops. Um, it includes the time that people spend uh, in front of television or you know, binge watching on Netflix or Hulu or now Amazon Prime. So um, we're just spending more time in front of screens and it's having an effect on us. I, I also think with, with the amount of information available, I think there's this, this sense that we've got to do more. And I think people are required to do more uh, sometimes with less. And I think the stress and strain of, of high productivity continuing to compete, uh, I think puts a lot of additional stress on people, the, the, the concerns around jobs. And so I think there are a lot of societal stresses, but I do think the availability of information and knowledge is, is, is almost forcing us to think that we have to know everything. And I think those kinds of things begin to pressure people in ways that uh, we haven't seen, I think, in the past. And so it's that, that pressure or maybe that uh, the, the, the pressure that are, the pressures that are unrealistic then, which are resulting in employees feeling inadequate or unhappy. I, I think so. And, and, and you see people spending sometimes more time at work trying to do more uh, and sometimes not even taking care of themselves. So I think the stresses and pressures of productivity, uh, keeping your job, uh, really, really start playing into people. And, and what you are outside carries you, carries with you and walks with you into the workplace. So you, you don't leave that outside, you bring that with you. I think Jay, Jay raises a very good issue. And I um, recently wrote about this. I call it the stress connection gap. And the way I think of it is as stress is higher from just this um, barrage of information. We have leaders who I think are less focused these days and trying to do too much. And that's just created a lot of stress on people. And you have economic stress sometimes on top of that, and relationship stress. And when you don't have that, that supportive uh, connection in your life, you're less resilient to cope with stress. But when you do have those supportive relationships, then you have a much greater tolerance for for stress. In fact, and the way I think of it is it converts stress from a toxic stress that harms us to a challenge stress that actually helps us perform better. So in the face of what might seem, you know, some really daunting uh, problems with, um, with stress and the experience that employees are having, uh, what can organizations do to help? Well, what, one thing we can do is um, when you think about organizational cultures, we found in our work that Cultures either isolate people or they uh, connect people so that they have those supportive relationships. And in the cultures that isolate people, we think of them in two ways. One is the culture of control, and that's where those who have power, control, influence, and status rule over the rest, and it develops learned helplessness. So it obviously works against engagement. It makes people less resilient. There's also the culture of indifference, where people are just so busy trying to keep their heads above water, they feel like they don't have time for relationships. And unfortunately, that doesn't meet that uh, hardwired need we have for connection. And once again, it makes us less resilient to cope with stress. So creating a connection culture, you know, we think of connection as a, a superpower. It makes us smarter, happier, uh, more productive. And there are the perils of indifference that really uh, make us more um, uh, boosts uh, in civility, uh, workplace violence, um, abuse of power, things like that. So we really need to be intentional about training leaders to 
increase connection in these cultures and move people away from these cultures of indifference and uh, cultures of control that isolate people. And we need to train individual contributors on just the wellness benefits of connection and the perils of isolation. And I think one of those things with connection is also we have things like employee opinion surveys, uh, town halls. I mean, really reaching out, asking for uh, input from employees in terms of how are you doing? Uh, you know, we'll talk about work-life balance um, and, and, and wellness. But I think looking, seeking input, making sure that we recognize the importance of our employees and how critical they are. And, and we have a, a major focus on, on patients and on customers, but if you don't have employees who are engaged and, and happy with what they're doing, they can't satisfy the needs of the customers and the patients. And so I think one is listening to the voice of the, the, uh, the employees, acting on those, those things that they say, and, and really seeing the value and importance of who they are and what they bring. And things like surveys, employee opinion surveys can help with that asking people for their opinions, but I think engaging the hearts and minds of employees is critical to really get people to a place where they feel like they're making a contribution. So from your experience at Yale New Haven, uh, I mean, so obviously surveys and proactive management uh, outreach is, is, is good. Have you had any issues with, with employees who are difficult to reach? I think there's probably a sort of a, a there's kind of a reinforcement cycle that could happen as employees get less and less engaged. They would also tend to be the ones who would be least likely to respond to a, to an opinion survey. So how do you break that cycle if, if that's something you're seeing? Yeah, I'm not really sure you're going to reach everyone, but I think you always have those employees who are, are totally engaged. I mean, they're always there. Their hearts and minds are there. You have some of those who are in the middle uh, that they, they want to wait and see. And then there may be those few who just no matter what you do, they're not going to change. And so I think the key is, is to reach the majority, those who are in the middle, those who are at the top. I think sometimes we focus all of our energy on, on the few who are just disgruntled. But I think engaging those who want to be there, who have a desire to work, and letting those employees who may be disgruntled see that there is a, a commitment to really bringing everyone's voice to the workplace. But I don't know if you're going to ever satisfy everyone. But so you're changing culture then by focusing on, you know, I don't know if it's an 80-20 proportion or, or but certainly you're focusing on the people you can, yeah, you can work with and, and, uh, and hoping it, uh, it moves, the, moves the goalposts for everybody then. Absolutely. And, you know, there may be some employees for it. It's not a good fit. And so for me, the thing that, that I, I struggle with is for employees who come to work and they're miserable and happy. The question is, is finding a place where you're going to be able to contribute your fullest. And if you're miserable where you are, then try and find a place where you can find where your gifts and your talents meet so that you can be productive and enjoy what you're doing because we spend so much time at work. Yeah, and I, I agree with Jay. I think, you know, there are, there's always going to be the intentional disconnectors out there, the curmudgeons who just don't want to connect. But I, I also think, and I just want to um, get managers and those who are listening to the podcast to think about this. When you look at that Cigna data, for example, it said half, more than half of Americans tested lonely on the UCLA loneliness scale, which is the gold standard of loneliness research. And so we're going to see more people coming into the workplace. Um, you, you know, there's certainly going to be the intentional disconnectors out there, as Jay said. But there's also going to be this group of people who are struggling with loneliness. And because oftentimes, Loneliness is a blind spot for people. I know there was a stage in my life where I went through that. I didn't feel well. And it was only in hindsight that I realized 
I had crowded out time for relationships in my life and my drive to be successful on Wall Street. And I didn't feel well, but I didn't understand it was because I was lonely. So I think it's, it's good for managers to be aware. If you see someone who's isolating themselves, who's struggling, you know, think about are, are they struggling with loneliness? And if you look at the research on loneliness, it also shows that people often, loneliness, they kind of spiral down into this state of loneliness and they need someone to help reconnect them with the group. And so the manager who can take initiative to do that really will help save an employee. And I think we're gonna see more of that in the future, given that half our population is testing out as lonely on the UCLA loneliness scale. And if you're asking uh, managers to help intervene in those cases, they, they have to, you, you have to train emotional intelligence then. Yeah, that, that's one of the things is, is really talking about the role of leaders and managers, because I think when you, you look at the pace of how we work today, it, it is so different the demands we place on our leaders to get things done, but, but it's important that leaders have a sense of, and we have assessments that we use. We, we use internal assessments. We use 360s. And so I think it's important that um, managers are, are comfortable engaging in these conversations uh, because sometimes you don't know where they're going to go. But, but, but as, as Mike was saying, being aware of your own challenges, uh, making sure of, of, of where things are with you, but then being able to sit down and sometimes have those difficult conversations when you see someone struggling and being comfortable with that. But there are there skills, experiences, competencies that go with that. Being able to hear, to question, to listen, not judge. Uh, I think our leaders need some development to help them be comfortable and realize it's not just a matter of getting the work done, operations and finance, but it's also making sure that the people who are working with us are in a place where, where they can they can get the help and support they need. So Jay, uh, what has Yale New Haven uh, done to address this issue and um, what results have you seen? Have you seen improvement in um, any engagement results or anything like that? Um, can you talk a little bit about your experience? We've done a couple of things. We, we're evolving. I wish we say we're perfect. We're evolving. One of the things we're doing, and, and we have a program that I'll talk about in a while uh, that we've launched with our senior leaders, but we, we went through a couple of years uh, ago, and we, we talked about our values. What is it we value? And we had the majority of our employees contribute to this called the Barrett uh, Value Survey. And, and so as a result, we just implemented to our patient experience process uh, something we call the professional, the standards of professional behavior, which are values, our key values. And we put those values also into our, our performance management. So it's patient-centered, respect, which means valuing all people, compassion, be empathetic, integrity, do the right thing, accountability, be responsible and taking actions. And we're making sure that all of our employees know what these values mean. But we're also holding everyone, and that means everyone from the front line non-exempts to, to physicians and leaders around these values to make sure that we create a culture. So it's a journey for us uh, to making sure that everyone knows what it is we expect and then provide training around those, those, those values. Uh, and we connect that with our vision and our mission. So we're trying to create a culture recognizing that if our employees are happy, if they're satisfied, then they can really address the needs of our patients and, and those come, uh, who, who come to see us and, and depend on us. And so we're trying to bring that culture uh, to every person who works in our health system. 
Now, Jay, I wanted to ask just a question of scale, because I don't know if everyone uh, listening is going to be familiar with the Elna Haven Health System or, or the number of, so how many, how many people, how many employees are you uh, charged with the reaching? And then on the other hand, um, how many people were involved in, in the, tr the administration of the training? So we're about 25,000 employees. We have six hospitals and we have uh, um, our Northeast Medical Group, which are, is our physician practices. And so we, we are sending that message out to everyone. We just had a conference uh, last week and every year we have annual conferences um, and where we talk about these things, we bring in patients uh, to talk about what it is we're doing, but we are rolling this training out. We still have some work to do, but the goal is that everyone is exposed to these uh, these concepts. We ask our managers, we train our managers and expect our managers to share this with their staff. And so our goal is to train everyone uh, in, in this process. And what was your second question? Uh, well, it was really a rollout question was, uh, was uh, not only how many are, how many people are you training, but also how many people are involved in the administration or the, or the delivery of, of the training. You mentioned there's a, uh, a train the trainer essentially uh, layer to this, but uh, how large is, is the learning development staff, for example, that you're working with? Well, um, this is my team. Unfortunately, it's smaller than I, I would like. There are about 25 of us in total, but we work through leaders. And so we, we look to in, integrate leadership and so that we take the training from our team and then we train leaders who then are expected to, to take this to the employees. And so we try to cascade this process across the health system. But we start with leadership, get them involved, get them enrolled from the senior leaders to, to the frontline supervisors, and then require them to take this out and then try and support them in the process. But the ratio is rather, it's one to a thousand or thereabouts, if, if you forgive my quick math. Well, yeah, that, that's about it. So it's one to a thousand. So it's, it's really impossible for us to be out there, the eyes and ears of all. That's why we, we try to get our leadership equipped so that they, they're there in the day to day and help them to be equipped to, to take this forward because we just don't have the bandwidth to be with everyone every time. So, so Michael, maybe you can speak to uh, lessons that you could, from your perspective, that other organizations of other sizes, smaller or larger, could learn from, from Jay's example or his experience. What, uh, what, 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 what do you think the recommendations or takeaways would be? Sure. Well, one thing I'm seeing more of, and I can uh, share an example from another healthcare system, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And I think we should go back to Jay because he's created a program that also is a cohort-based program. I think it would be Good for your listeners to hear about that. Um, the program I had in mind at um, one client we work with is the Ambulatory Care Group of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And uh, what they do is they create cohorts of new employees in the range of 24 to 30 who are coming in. And they immediately put them through a three-week training program, which is a big investment. But they feel it's important to really acclimate them to the, uh, to the culture of the organization, to uh, set expectations about care for patients and uh, the caregivers. They, um, you know, the managers of ambulatory care are, uh, actually deliver about 70% of the program content. And um, what we do in our work with the ambulatory care group of Sloan Kettering is we train all the first, uh, all the supervisors. So they go through a one-day course on how to create a connection culture and how it differs from a culture of indifference or a culture of control. And we give them a tool we use called 100 Ways to Connect, 
and then set them up so they get our email newsletter on an ongoing basis and they're getting, it really keeps them, keeps connection in front of them, just examples of connection, why it's important that you research on it. And, um, and we know from research that connecting with patients and their family members, it reduces stress and it has a positive effect on patient outcomes. Now, Jay, maybe you could share with us just the program you created for leaders, the cohort program. Yeah, uh, there's a program we, I came here in 2008 and there's a program that was created in, <coughs> excuse me, 2009. One of the things I wanted to say about it, I, I've been fortunate to work for some really, really phenomenal organizations. One was Allstate Insurance Company. Uh, I spent uh, almost 18 years here. I worked at Merck Pharmaceutical and also Ernst & Young. And one of the consistent things I see that I see here is there was a close connection and tie-in with vision, mission, and values. And, and those things permeated the organization. So there was an expectation that, that when you come in, this is who we are, this is what we stand by. I think those things have to be held up high and, and people have to then be held accountable to what those things mean. And so when I first got here in 2008, uh, we put together a program with the Yale School of Management, and this program uh, was driven through succession management. So we identified uh, 15 leaders from across our health system in all disciplines, uh, included uh, physicians, nurses, operations, finance, HR. And we brought them together. It was a nine-month program. Uh, we had our senior leadership uh, identify these individuals. We identified competencies, and, and we worked with the Yale School of Management to, to identify uh, uh, how we then put together a curriculum around those competencies. We also identified um, mentors and coaches. And, and so the mentors were people, were our senior leaders from different uh, delivery networks or hospitals. They work with people outside of their area. And so they got to know them. Uh, we also had internal coaches working with these individuals. And, and we gave them uh, strategic projects, the senior leadership team CEO, they identified projects that were critical to the organization. So they actually took the projects, learned the actual um, uh, competencies and areas of expertise. And they applied these to these, um, uh, these, these projects, uh, did a number of things. Um, it, it helped to build um, a sense of, of collaboration and team. And these individuals over the nine months really developed closer relationships. And so when there were conflicts in, in, in the past, you'd have a conflict and you would kind of hold those grudges. But we had two individuals who called one another, sat down, worked the issues out within an hour, and, and the relationships grew. So one, we found not only did we able, were we able to identify um, powerful leaders in the organization, they were also able to work on projects. They got to know senior management. They got to know one another. And, and out of the 15, this is our first cohort, um, one retired, 12 were, well, 13 were promoted. Um, six right now have made it to level of, of senior vice president. Some have left the organization because of it. Uh, at least 10 of them have made uh, vice presidents who were seeing uh, this group that was identified through the organization, our senior leaders, really coalesce, come together, break down the barriers, learn to work together, um, there are also, one thing I will say about these individuals, we, they all were very introspective about their own development. And I, I can tell you that as much as they were concerned about their own development, they had this desire uh, to develop others. And so we, we've now, we're going into our seventh cohort uh, and working with the Yale School of Management. But this program was, was really modeled after some work that was done at the Center for Creative Leadership 
their 70, 20, 10 model, 10% learning is classroom, 20% is coaching, mentoring, 70% is actually doing and learning and, 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 and taking that and, and refreshing that. And so we follow that model. Uh, the military does this very well. Um, and, and it's a strong model that, that uh, we've applied. And we're seeing some great results. One of the things that also came out of this, we, we, do, we do assessments. So we have a, a assessment, it's uh, developed by Robert Hartman. Dr. Hartman uh, died in 1973, was up for a Nobel Prize. Um, he was one of the founders of profit sharing back in the 40s. Uh, people don't hear a lot about him. He was also a very close friend of Abraham Maslow. He had a lot of influence on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And so if you look at the work that Dr. Hartman's done, he focuses on work life, but his most important aspect is your personal life and making sure that you bring balance into the workplace, but you focus on how are you showing up? How are you taking care of yourself? Uh, less criticism about what you do. And, and this has really opened up, I think, a lot of opportunities from some of our leaders. Unfortunately, probably only about 10% of the leaders who I go through with this really gravitate towards that. And probably out of that 15 I talked about in 2009, they were those who really ascribed to this. So it is important, as Michael said, one of the strongest relationships we have to create is a relationship we have with ourselves. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I think we're reading and writing and talking a lot more about about that, about you know, work-life balance or or blending, as as I've seen it called as well, and and also about wellness. But um, as you said, uh, not all leaders are necessarily gravitating toward that conversation. So, um, what recommendations do you have for uh, learning leaders who want to implement some of these wellness programs to to get the executive buy-in that they need to do so? You, you use an interesting, I'll let Michael handle this, but you use an interesting term as learning. And I think that that is key for leaders, is having this desire to learn. When I first came in, I was brand new to this institution. So I had to find individuals who supported the work I did. And I did Skunk Works and found individuals who really, really uh, bought into what we had and, and got got their buy-in and support, and then they helped me move this through to leadership. I know Mike may have, Michael may have some, some thoughts around that. Yeah, we, um, we wrote, um, uh, Jay and I first met when I came to Yale New Haven and spoke, and that was when our first book came out about connection culture called Fired Up or Burned Out. And the last book we uh, did was called Connection Culture. It came out in 2014, and it... Um, it really made the case in a little over a hundred pages for why cultures need connection. And, you know, now we're seeing all this research about uh, just high levels of stress. 80% of Americans say they're afflicted with stress and low levels of connection. So we really do have that, that stress connection gap that's going on. And when what's basically happening from a biological standpoint is, which we explain in the book, and I think it, it helps leaders understand why this is important because right now they don't really, We'll say culture is important, but they don't have a clarity about what culture is. And um, it helps them see that when we have high stress and low connection, then our body goes into a state of stress response so that certain systems in our body are under-allocated blood glucose and oxygen, including parts of our brain, our digestive system, and our immune system. So we're vulnerable to not feeling well, to sickness and disease. And, People just, um, it sabotages their performance. And 
in the most extreme cases, it leads to acts of violence or suicide, and it just has a profound effect on our bodies. So we really make that case and help people understand in the book, Connection Culture, why culture is important, exactly what culture is, and the cultures you need to be aware of and how to create the best culture. And I think that's a, it's a, it really is, we wrote it, it's a great tool to clarify the issues, to provide a framework and language that will help. As Jay pointed out, you know, finding the leaders who walk the talk already, who really believe this, and then giving them the tools to help them, uh, you know, lead the charge in the organization to focus on it. Well, one of the things, Taryn, we've done, and I go back to the Hartman Value Profile, it, it talks about things like self-regard, uh, hobbies. Are, are you taking time to do the things you really enjoy? It asks about meaningfulness of work, value of work. Uh, do you have your priorities in order so that you're being driven by those priorities? And there's one, one question that also asks about self-criticism. Uh, how critical are you? Because we tend to be very, very critical, perfectionists. We push ourselves, and sometimes we are our worst enemy because we beat ourselves up. And so as we talk about loneliness and getting in those places where, where you go into depression and, and you're not engaged with others, it, it's important as we begin looking at how do we take care of ourselves, especially with leaders. And, and so the framework that we use around Hartman, it talks about self-esteem, self-image, but it really gets leaders to focus on themselves. As you can imagine, a lot of our scores are high on the work side, but we, we have a lot of work to do on the sell side. Well, Jay, Michael, we're about out of time. I want to thank you very much for being here on the Business of Learning, the Training Industry Podcast. I'll let you, each of you have a final thought, or Mike, if you can share your, uh, maybe your website address, if people want to follow up and uh, that, uh, more of your, I know you have a sample chapter or two available for people to download. Sure, people can download um, these uh, sample chapters of Connection Culture on my, at my blog, michaeleestoller.com, or they can go to connectionculture.com. And as part of that, we also make available a 30-page ebook called 100 Ways to Connect that we started developing when we were doing work with the engineering section at the NASA Johnson Space Center. All right, terrific. Well, thank you very much for your time, and it's been great talking to you. Thank you both. Thank you. And uh, we came to this topic as part of our focus on employee wellness and other health and safety topics as we planned um, our participation and engagement in National Safety Month this June. So if you want to read more on these topics, visit trainingindustry.com slash compliance. And of course, you can always check us out on social media as well. Thanks for listening. If you have feedback about this episode or would like to suggest a topic for a future program, email us at info at trainingindustry.com or use the contact us page at trainingindustry.com. Thanks for listening to the Training Industry Podcast.